I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, and on this week's Noon Edition, we're going to be exploring outer space. We'll discuss how science fiction shapes scientific fact and what is being done to ensure that creative relationship continues. Science fiction literature and film often serve as a cat- catalyst for youth engagement in scientific studies, helping instill the newest generations with a curiosity of the cosmos. We'll be talking about that topic and much more after this hour's news. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with WFIU reporter Becca Costello. And yes, that was new music for today's show. We're going to be talking about uh, space following the recent discovery of seven Earth-like planets in a nearby galaxy. Space is once again in the public consciousness. Uh, Humans have been intrigued by space, though, since before we were physically exploring it. Novelists and filmmakers have used space in sci-fi literature and film for at least the last century, instilling multiple generations with a curiosity of the cosmos. Today, we're going to be discussing how sci-fi literature and film help shape factual science and how the two worlds have grown together through the years and why both are so important to the future of the human race. And we have four guests. Three are in the studio and one's joining us from Arizona today. So joining us in the studio are DeWitt Kilgore, Associate Professor in the Department of English at Indiana University, Richard Durson, who's a Professor Emeritus at Indiana University in Astronomy, Greg McCauley, the Executive Director and CEO of the Link Observatory, and Joey Eschrick, who is at Arizona State University. He's the editor and program manager of the Center for Science and the Imagination. If you want to join the program today, give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join, uh, join us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Well, thank you all for being here today. I'm, I'm fascinated by this topic. I know Becca is too. Good to I have am. you here. I, I'm here because I'm a bit of a science fiction fan, so I'm all excited. Right. Glad to have you cool. here. So, um, Richard Durson, Professor Durson, um, could you talk a little bit about this recent discovery that's been in the news and how, how, why is it important to us? Uh, <clears throat> it's actually uh, an interesting uh, example of how uh, space-based telescopes and ground-based telescopes work together. The TRAPPIST-1 system was first discovered uh, using ground-based techniques where people just looked for the light from the star to wink wink a little bit as a planet passed in front of it. And I believe they found two or three planets that way. And so that motivated Spitzer Space Telescope uh, to look at the system. And the reason why uh, some of you may know that Spitzer is an infrared telescope. 
And the reason why they used an infrared telescope is the star that they saw these few winks uh, in front of, uh, which is now called TRAPPIST-1, is a very, very dim red dwarf. And uh, stars of that type emit most of their light in the infrared. So by using a space-based infrared telescope, they had a chance of seeing more than just those uh, first few planets. Mm -hmm. And they saw, saw more. They, mm -hmm. The system has a total of seven. And what's uh, really interesting about it is that three, fully three of them are in the, what we call the classical habitable zone, mm -hmm. uh, where uh, if the planets were roughly Earth-like, they would, um, l water could exist as a liquid on the surface. Mm -hmm. But in fact, the other planets are within a possible wider habitable zone, uh, depending on what their atmospheres are like. And we know they're rocky because we can see them pass in front of the star, and we have have uh, information about their masses. So uh, they've, they, they have got to be uh, primarily rocky. They're Earth-like. Wow. So, uh, you know. Oh, this and is, it's close. It's, it's in well, such a, yeah, a well, nearby galaxy. Close. In fact, it's <laughs> in our own galaxy and in what we call the solar neighborhood. Uh -huh. it, and it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Uh, the, these uh, planets are only 40 light years away, which is uh, Buck Rogers' striking distance anyway. <laughs> uh, wow. So, yeah, if you could put this into a little bit of context uh, for me also. So, Joey, I'm going to ask you, Joey Eshrick, uh, to talk about, you know, the, the magnitude of this discovery and, and why this is important. Yeah. Yeah. Um I think I, I want to take off on that, you know, Buck Rogers zone comment because okay. I think that what this does, uh, seeing as our work here at Arizona State University is very much about um, helping people Im imagine different futures for humanity and, and, and help us have a better conversation about those possible futures. And I think that something, you know, that seems this close in, in galactic terms, a discovery, you know, of this magnitude in our neighborhood uh, allows people to start imagining that we might have, you know, the kind of encounters with extraterrestrial life or with other star systems or you know other solar systems that we that we've imagined in science fiction for for decades or more centuries and you know so I, I think it'll it'll be a really interesting time where we're seeing you know fiction and reality moving closer together and perhaps we'll have interesting new stories about human encounters with different space-based civilizations or about how we're going to grapple on Earth with some of the policy issues, ethics, cultural issues of uh, discovering new and unexpected things uh, in space. And, and, again, again, you know, not within our reach today, but within our reach if you start using a science fictional lens and start thinking speculatively and start thinking expansively about human possibility. Mm -hmm. So DeWitt Kilgore from the uh, Department of English at, at IU, so you've been studying uh, science fiction for uh, for a long time and studying what's going on, well, for a while, short period of time. You're a young All guy. my life. You're, right. <laughs> um, so, you know, when you read about this new discovery, I mean, what did this open up any, what kind of thoughts did you have? What did it open up for you? Well, one of the interesting things in uh, science fiction following the Second World War is that uh, writers, fans, and the public have always been interested in the idea of life elsewhere. And one of the um, 
uh, I guess, interesting kind of popular understanding of exoplanet discovery, uh, particularly of terrestrial planets. It has to do with whether or not life as we know it can exist elsewhere, you know, outside of our own planet Earth, outside the solar system. Uh, and that's certainly something that science fiction has both on, on the page and on the screen has been interested in. You know, will there be people uh, like us, you know, secondary uh, question would, could we actually live on, you know, some other planet that's roughly like our own? Uh, so uh, a lot of the, some of the kind of newspaper commentary around uh, the Trappist planets, you know, have to do with that, particularly with the notion, okay, this is within the habitable zone, right? Uh, there might be liquid water, on these planets that might have atmospheres, you know, not not a kind of desert-like space like the moon. So those are some of the thoughts that, you know, kind of came immediately to mind. Okay, before I turn over to Becca for a question, I, w I do want to get uh, Greg McCauley on, on the air too. So Greg, from your perspective as the executive director of the, the Link Observatory, I mean, what how, do you think this, I mean, is this something that you're going to encourage people to come out and will people be able to see this from your observatory or I mean it's too far away for that right it's too far away for that it's, okay. it's right on the plane of the ecliptic and yeah. constellation Aquarius but it's it's such it's so dim that it's you know we'd not be able to image it with any telescope probably mm -hmm. but uh, yeah we've always we have a wide variety of public programs uh, that we have done for years all throughout Indiana and uh, we have big turnouts for this and certainly exoplanet discovery the idea that that there could be life elsewhere uh, is of, of high interest to everyone. We just pack the house because of that subject. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I may say something about the Trappist-1 sure. discovery, um, we've been following exoplanet discoveries for the last decade or so. I mean, the, it's been big news. We just may find, even though the Trappist-1 discovery is so important because it becomes our top candidate for our search for life uh, in the next few years, we may find we're surrounded by those type of planetary systems. We may find in the future, and we talk about science fiction, that what is real is so much more engaging than science fiction has been in the past because we may find that we are part of this giant cosmic ecosystem. And I think this is due to some of the most exciting times in human history right now. Can I ask for a definition of exoplanet? Exoplanet are, are planets outside of our solar system that orbit around stars, other stars, our, our sun being a star, our planetary system orbiting around our sun, the same type of situations of planets orbiting around other stars. Okay, good. Okay. And, uh, Joey and DeWitt, I'm interested in um, this idea of science fiction as, as basically imagining what our possible futures can be. And DeWitt, especially, you've written a lot about how that intersects with some race. Um, and, and I, I as a science fiction fan, one of the things that I'm interested in is I feel like science fiction tends to um, say, okay, we're at whatever point in the future, we've moved beyond all of these petty problems like racism. Um, and, and is that a realistic portrayal of what we might see in the future? Um, I, I guess if you don't mind talking a little bit about your own research in that. Okay. Well, uh, my training is as a cultural historian, and one of the things that you find when you just study history, uh, particularly American history, is that things change over time, particularly our social relationships, right? So the way that we define um, race, uh, gender, ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera, uh, we look at it nowadays and we kind of think, oh, 
this is the way that things work, and it's fixed and eternal. Uh, the actual fact is that these things change over time, right? So if you put that in a kind of in a science fictional con context, it's fair game to wonder how uh, social and political change, how that would be affected by the things that we discover, the places where we go to, right? And uh, I would suspect conservatively that um, we can certainly imagine the different ways that that might happen, but the thing that we can, that it's a safe bet, is that uh, if uh, our species were actually able to survive and to uh, go to another planetary system and live there, that we would be uh, different, that the, the way that uh, people organize themselves, that the way that they live, et cetera, et cetera, would be different than the way we are in the early 21st century. So that's part of what, you know, I kind of, I, uh, my work kind of deals with, you know. So what are the possibilities, you know, particularly around that whole notion that um, what we learn through science and technology, what we can do, uh, would change us for the better. Right? At least that was what we all hope. Of course, we're all aware that our popular culture uh, is very fascinated by the dystopian possibilities because the dystopian possibilities uh, are more exciting to think about. You know, the, uh, uh, the various guests, uh, uh, young adult science fiction movies like uh, Allegiant and uh, the uh, Hunger Games, you know, for example, right? Um, just because of the way I'm wired, I tend to want to think about the more optimistic. <laughs> I'm, I'm a Star Trek Next Generation fan <laughs> in terms of future society. Oh, yeah, that's optimistic. That's yes. more optimistic. Um, and well, uh, some of these. Oh, sorry, no, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead, Joey. Um, I was going to say some of, some of these, and you know, bridging off what, what Dr. Kilgore was saying, uh, you know, Star Trek's a great example also of assuming a certain set of human values and projecting them forward in a linear way. So Star Trek, I think, appeals to us because it takes the values, especially the ones that we really like, from the European Enlightenment, uh, rationality, objectivity, uh, equality among men, right? And it projects them forward into the future and imagines that they'll be expanded throughout the galaxy and that changes in science and technology will allow us to, to act more rationally. Um, but you know, uh, attempts to predict the future through science fiction and nonfiction have shown generally that those straight line predictions, you know, are foiled and 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 tend not to tend not to come to fruition because just there's there there's so many variables in in the sweep of historical change. So you know, the, the science fiction I'm interested in, consequently, is the science fiction uh, that allows us to think differently about social arrangements now. That allows us to think differently about economics and politics and culture. And, issues like inequality uh, today, and, and, and let's just imagine that, that things are different, giving people a sense of agency and saying that our current systems, if, you know, whether we like them or not, that they're not unchangeable, that they can be changed by changing technological uh, sure. innovations, changing scientific understandings, uh, changing notions of, of, of what it means to be human. And uh, I think that as we look to science fiction, it's, it's, it's interesting and helpful to look at, at, at science fiction as a futurism, but it's also interesting to, to look at it as political critique. And that, you know, that goes all the way back to, to Frankenstein, uh, you know, one of the arguable starting points for the genre. And uh, one of the, I think sorry. you really hit on uh, an important point there about uh, the future and, and technology changing what it means to be human. Um, 
I actually uh, write some science fiction myself, and uh, and that's that's one of the things I like to think about. Unfortunately, in order to get published, you have to write characters that are that are um, easily perceived as human by current standards. But um, and I don't think that that will be the case in a few thousand years if we survive. Um, but that's I think that is one of the most interesting questions that that you raised. Uh, um, and and it, it's part of what makes it difficult to project what will happen. I mean, the future could be both bad or good, depending on our current point of view. Uh, but it will be it'll be different for sure. Mm. So, Mr. Durson, how have your your studies and, and thinking about that have they changed the way that you write? Like, could you give an example of how that's influenced your writing? Well, my uh, my scientific research doesn't really impact my writing so much, but uh, because of because of being a uh, an astronomer and and teaching astronomy classes, I keep up with research in other areas of physics and astronomy, and so things like. Uh, never mind uh, the plurality of worlds in our own universe, there may be a plurality of universes. And that's an idea that's around in science. It's not, it's not established. It, it's, it's kicked around. There are various directions you can argue for multiverse uh, pictures. Uh, but that's, I've used that in, in some of the writing I do. But I've also done very pedestrian sort of near future stuff. Uh, I wrote a story about uh, about a, billion, a trillionaire who uh, who gets tricked in a way by by one of his own scientists into having a karmic transplant that uh, effectively um, uh, effectively makes him him well. It's unclear. I, I deliberately make it unclear whether the people move as when the karma moves, and uh, and then suddenly this trillionaire's. Uh, effect on the world is 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 uh, moderated but that that's kind of near-term science fiction but I like I like the far future stuff well it, it's interesting you, you just I mean I saw some reruns of the Twilight Zone recently and that sounds like an episode I might have seen hmm. you know, so. Uh, something that probably any of our panelists can answer, you know, when we're talking about this sort of blurring the line between what's science fiction and what is science fact, um, how is it important for science fiction to be scientifically sound, or is there some wiggle room there for projecting ideas what we wish it could be? Uh, well, I think there are different genres of science fiction, and there and there's the, the kind of Buck Rogers pulp science fiction where you don't worry about that, you know, you just do what you want, uh, kind of like. Uh, except you make it sound science fiction-y. And that, that, that's, that's kind of the, the Star Trek approach, too. I mean, they use the words, but, but they use them, often use them in ways that don't make any sense. You just remodulate everything. <clears throat> if something's wrong, just try remodulating or reversing the polarity is, is a good example yeah, of these it, science fiction-y yes. terms. Yeah, yeah you, you did it well there. Okay. <laughs> uh, but then there's a, what's called hard science fiction, where you try to stay within the bounds of plausible future science. And, and that's a little bit different. And the, the ground rules there are you, you, do, you do have to be careful. And then there are some uh, really techno-geek kind of stuff um, like Ford's uh, writing where uh, uh, Neutron Star, where he visits, uh, what's the name of it, Dragon's Egg, where he visits a Neutron Star and he has some incredible orbital dynamics and in that I can't even follow it, but it's all worked out. 
Robert right. L. Forward, who yes. was a physicist as well as a science fiction. That's writer. right. Yeah. Yeah. Let me give our phone numbers really quickly, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348. Outside of the local calling area, you can also uh, follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So uh, Greg McCauley is the executive director and CEO of the Link Observatory. So what do people see when they go to the observatory? What kind of programming, programming do you have? Well, we, we focus on astronomy and also NASA missions and space exploration. We're pretty broad mm-hmm. in, in that respect uh, because there's so many things outside of astronomy itself that are happening in space exploration. The TRAPPIST-1, of course, is, is astronomy, but it's also space exploration. That has a lot, There's a lot of human connection, I think, there. And so uh, we do. Uh, we have a, a program called Link Live that we provide uh, multimedia programs all over Indiana. I think last year we had almost 16,000 people total that attended those, and, and it will be stronger this year. When they come out to the observatory, of course, they're looking at the stars, and it's so amazing to see families with kids that for the first time in their life have seen Saturn, as an example, through an observatory telescope. And you can literally stand out in the front lawn and hear the oohs and the ahs from the um, uh, from the, the dome, the observation deck of the uh, observatory. And I know, I know that we're changing lives up there. I know that there are kids that are 10 or 12 years old looking through that telescope as I did when I was 12, and uh, which then will, f- will form their, the direction in their life because they were so taken by uh, the wonders of the universe. And so that's our mission, you know, together, uh, both public engagement, science, and education, of course, are our, is our mission there. Mm-hmm. Let's go to, we have a, a phone call, so let's go quickly to the phones and get in uh, Rashan from Bloomington. Oh, God. <laughs> Sounds like you know him. Yes. Rashan, go ahead, please. Oh, hello. Hey, hello. Go ahead. Hi. So when is the next space launch going to be? Well, the next launch, I mean, you, if you would go to – there are space launches at Kennedy Space Center regularly and out at Vandenberg, around the world, actually. I'm not sure of the next date of, uh, like, a Delta launch at Kennedy. If you would go to uh, Kennedy Space Center website, they have all the launches scheduled, et cetera. The next really, really big one is October of 2018, which is the James Webb Space Telescope uh, from Cape Kennedy. And don't miss that one. That is as historic as the Hubble. And, uh, and and a hundred times more powerful. It's quite a machine. Yeah, say more about that. So uh, you know, the just describe what the Hubble was, what that meant to us, and now what this is going to mean to us. I, and I would defer this to uh, to um, uh, Dr. Durison, but, um, but because that's his line of, of uh, expertise. But the Hubble was <clears throat> 25 years ago. Was uh, it's a giant space telescope, and it gets. It, for the first time, really, gets a large telescope out from under our atmosphere so that we could really do some, some work you know, without the dis- disturbance or turbulence in our atmosphere. And Hubble, in my opinion, I think a lot of others, had just significantly changed our understanding of our place in this universe. And uh, anybody that would look at these magnificent, unbelievable Hubble images and the science that is still being done after 25 years would understand the absolute importance. It's probably the most productive machine we have ever built as a human race. And the James Webb Space Telescope, which has been going on for 20 years now, is going to launch after $8.8 billion, is going to launch in October of 2018. It's, a, it's an infrared telescope, and it's 100 times more sensitive than the Hubble is, hmm. we will be able to look beyond the 
our known edge of this universe and find out what's beyond that. And that has to be one of the, the most exciting times in human history. When will pictures be available? <laughs> it's about a nine-month mission out uh-huh. to uh, L2. It's called a Lagrange point out beyond the moon, about a million miles from Earth. Mm-hmm. It's way out there. So it's about a nine-month journey. And uh, by, by the time the deployment takes place, close to a year after the launch in October of 2018, mm-hmm. we'll get first light from that. Uh, my, here's my guess. And I'm, being just, I'm just being optimistic. The first 12 months of operation will change everything. Okay. We're going to have to take a short break. We're going to come back and talk more about what's going on in space and science fiction and uh, the connections between science and science fiction. Uh, After we take this short break, you're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. You can go back before Sputnik, and the famous B movie would be the movie of some some something in space, right? So uh, many many space movies preceded the launch of Sputnik. Uh, not only that, you can go back to H.G. Wells, late 1890s, uh, when he wrote the book War of the Worlds, which was Martians coming to Earth and invading. So it's not like people haven't been looking up. It's that in the era of Sputnik access to space is now just a real thing rather than some kind of fantasy. That was a uh, clip from uh, John Bailey is, has interviewed Neil deGrasse Tyson and uh, who is coming to IU? Or, yes, oh, he'll be come, here speaking at the IU. IU Auditorium very soon. And uh, of course he's very well known in the circles of astronomy and space exploration and everything else. So that was that was Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, in an interview with John Bailey from WFIU. So we're back, uh, and we have three guests here with us in the studio. DeWitt Kilgore, Associate Professor in the Department of English at Indiana University. Richard Durison, Professor Emeritus at Indiana University in Astronomy. Greg McCauley, the Executive Director of and CEO of the Link Observatory. And Joey Eschrick who is uh, the editor and program manager at the Center for Science and the Imagination at Arizona State University. If you have questions or comments, please give us a call at 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. And uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. I should tell you I'm Bob Zaltzberg and Becca Costello is also here with us. 
Becca? Yeah, uh, and I, I'm interested. We talked a little bit before the break about um, how much more we're going to learn in the next couple of years now that we have the technology. Um, but I'm interested, too. It seems like science fiction used to be such a, a, a niche interest. I think it was, you know, geeky or nerdy. But now it seems like there's a lot more of science fiction in popular culture. And to our panelists, um, especially Joey, I feel like this is kind of your area. Do you feel like that will inspire more young people to be interested in becoming scientists um, if, if it's if if it's more something that's permeated our culture? I, I certainly hope so. I think that in some ways, and I'm a bit of a crank on this, I guess, but I think in some ways the, uh, the expansion of, of, of what people think of as science fiction across, you know, across popular culture has been in you know, areas like superhero movies, right? Uh, has, has had these sciencey touches in, in, inside these kind of mega blockbuster films. And then the young adult novels, which I do think are really valuable, um, but often... Uh, you know, for, 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 you know, veteran readers of science fiction can be a little bit flat and, and, and simple in the way that they kind of stage battles between good and evil. Um, I think that, uh, however, there are these really intriguing developments, see things like Arrival, which uh, I really love as an example of a, of, of a science fiction uh, story. And, you know, it's built from a short story by Ted Chang. Uh, and if you haven't read the short story, but you saw the film, you should go back and read the short story. It's also quite good. But I really like the way that it, 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 takes, a, it takes a scientific idea. It takes, you know, the, 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 the way that language constructs reality. And, you know, it really spins out the consequences of that idea on a planetary and interplanetary scale. And I think the best science fiction, you know, even as we were talking about that spectrum of like, there's all these different styles of science fiction, and some are very, you know, nitty gritty about scientific detail, some kind of don't care about it quite as much and are, are more interested in narrative momentum. Um, almost all of that literature, even the Buck Rogers stuff, has these, these little bits of, of, you know, quantum mechanics or string theory or, or um, you know, rocketry, you know, built into the story. And I think what can be really cool about science fiction is someone who doesn't have a formal scientific background is that it can help introduce you to an idea in general terms, and it can help you spin out all of the social and cultural and political consequences of that idea, how it's going to actually affect people's lives. So whether that's arrival and it's, you know, the idea of language as a technology, or, you know, whether it's something like interstellar with these huge kind of, you know, quantum machines bending space-time, uh, it, you know, it, science fiction has the power to tell really human and emotional stories that are about relationships, but that are imbued with significance by science and technology. Uh, and and, and, and great, gain, gain a, a sense of scope and grandeur, uh, you know, and, and that can be inspiring. And it doesn't necessarily matter the tone of the story. Uh, you know, famously, the, the creator of the transistorized pacemaker, Earl Backen, uh, was inspired by the 1931 Universal Frankenstein, which is very kind of anti-science in the way it presents, uh, the, you know, the process of scientific discovery and the morals and ethics of scientists. But still, he took the... The, the kind of negative message of that movie and turned it into this positive message of, you know, I want to explore further the creation of life, you know, the, the interconnection between electricity and life. And that ended up leading to this great leap forward for, for humankind in terms of healthcare. So that's very far from space, but I think it illustrates the way that these stories that kind of play out the uh, implications of technological change, scientific discovery, and do it in a really human way that's charged with emotion, then it's about human connection and relationships can can kind of, you know, can bend the arc of people's lives. We've been talking about, you know, the idea of the Link Observatory changing, changing lives. And I think that can happen in science fiction as well as in um, great public outreach centers and science centers like, like Link. Mr. Durson, you thought of Oh, it was a very minor point. Uh, uh, your comment about even the, even pulp 
science fiction will throw in little tidbits. Uh, I remembered uh, Forbidden Planet when one of the crew members describes himself as a quantum mechanic mm. when he's working on a piece of equipment. Uh, I remember being very impressed by that when I was young. And um, I actually was first drawn to uh, astronomy when I was five or six years old, and, and my dad was just describing to me uh, what some things my uncle had told him about uh, what the universe was really like, and I was dumbfounded because it was so different from what was around me. And I'm really glad that these ideas are starting to permeate uh, our culture. Of you know, everybody knows we live in a well, almost everybody knows we live in a solar system, and and now um, a lot of people know we live in a galaxy. Um, it's becoming that's becoming a common view of of, of where we sit, and uh, I think that I think that's important. But I was drawn to science for the science, but it stimulated my imagination, and so that's what drew me to it. Well, you were talking about the, the film Arrival, and uh, so I, I just have to bring out my own experience in reading the book uh, The Martian a year or two ago and then watching the film. And the, I'm, I was really happy I'd read the book before I, I saw the film, but I, I just want – I guess I want your reviews on that one. On the Martian, can I can I jump in on yes, that? Yes, you can. I was going to make sure we talked about the Martian if we're going to talk about science fiction movies. I am uh, I'm one of these hard science fiction lovers. Arthur C. Clarke has been my favorite science fiction author since I was a kid. And uh, the Martian, if you ever look into how that book was written by uh, uh, Weir, is his name. Um, and uh, by the way, if you uh, there was an article in. Um, astronomy magazine about that book when the movie first the free movie first came out that book was required reading by the director of Johnson Space Center it was required reading for all salaried personnel at Johnson Space Center to help them get this this emotional involvement in a mission to Mars and uh, it was all about the human side of, of technology. It was all about problem solving. It was all about staying positive under the worst conditions and never giving up. And, and it was so accurate as far as it's, uh, it's the, the technical side of the movie. It's just one of the best science fiction movies I have ever seen, in my opinion. Oh, wow, good. I'm glad I, glad I liked it then. <laughs> Uh, uh, if we're, we're going to talk about our favorite movies, I think Contact is very, very close to the top for me. But Arrival was really good. Uh, that's, a, that's a bit of a mind bender. Uh -huh. So as uh, obviously Arrival was as a, a, probably the most recent example, um, but, you know, we talk about science fiction over the years. Uh, it, it's probably true that things that we thought were accurate, you know, decades ago, now we've realized, you know, we, we got some things wrong because we just didn't know. So as, as some, some of you are scientists, does that affect the way that you interact with science fiction? Does it uh, challenge the way or does it make it more difficult to enjoy something if you know that something's incorrect about it? Well, if I could start that, you know, science, in a broad view, is our, what would be called our current understanding of our current understanding of how the world was, how the universe was 100 years ago, is completely different than our understanding of how the world and the universe is today. And it will be completely diff different again 100 years from now. And that's made by the example of Galileo. Those, those discoveries are made possible by technology. Galileo was one of the first telescopes. And because of that, he saw the, the moons orbiting about Jupiter and decided that maybe our solar system worked that same way. So our technology, as it advances and grows, changes our current understanding of science. And 100 years from now, and from my perspective, 
our understanding is going to be completely different than what it is today. One of the things that science fiction as a literature does is uh, particularly the uh, part of it that is actually sensitive to uh, the way science is done as a living enterprise, right, is to give us some insight into it as not simply settled and dead knowledge, but as something that people do. Right, so the scientific knowledge as is something that is about um, not only investigating the material world, but uh, talking about your interpretation of that. And sometimes um, uh, that can lead to debates, right, about, okay, this group of people, scientists, see it this way. This group of scientists over here see it another way. Uh, how do we uh, kind of adjudicate that? Right, uh, and then produce the knowledge that we can say uh, we can pretty much take to the bank. That's a social enterprise as well as a kind of technical enterprise, right? And that's another way of connecting uh, people to science as uh, as a human activity, right? So, uh, to your question as to uh, you know, certainly what? Let's just take uh, science fiction that was written in. Uh, the 1950s, like Isaac Asimov's uh, Lucky Star on Venus, for example, kind of young adult uh, novels, uh, which imagines, or Robert Heinlein's uh, stories about Venus, which imagines Venus as a rainy planet uh, in which creatures, rainforests are on Venus, and which creatures could actually live. And let's say that that's roughly in accord with what we understood about Venus. You know, it's, it's a cloud-covered planet. We don't quite know what's going on. Nowadays, we know that uh, pretty much nothing that we know of that looks like us could live on the, sur on the surface of Venus. You know, it's, you know, very dense, and it uh, doesn't have an atmosphere like an Earth atmosphere. And so, the science in those books are, um, you know, pretty much invalid. But you could say that uh, it gives, for someone like me, it gives us a kind of window into what people were thinking at the time. Uh, if you read it nowadays, it's still entertaining, et cetera, et cetera. It's still stimulation of the imagination so that you might get curious about the planet Venus and say, okay, what do we know about it now? It could, could, it could lead you, actually, to... Uh, you know, finding out about what, what we understand about Venus now. And to more recent um, uh, writers like Pamela Sargent, uh, her novel Venus of Dreams, which is about the terraforming of Venus, of making Venus into a more Earth-like planet. So it might even lead you to a, 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 a well, not a, a, a engineering difference. You know, the idea that we could actually terraform planets, right? So... All right, our, our phone numbers again, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 from outside of the Bloomington area. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. It, it strikes me that we really have, you know, we have the, the merger of science and arts. I mean, this is arts and sciences right here mm -hmm. together on Noon Edition today. Um, I wanted to go back to the seven planets that had been, that have been discovered. And they're all, they're all called, I mean, in the popular media, they're called Earth-like planets. So what's that actually mean, an Earth-like planet? Uh, well, usually in astronomy, uh, what we mean is a rocky planet that's uh, 
anywhere from maybe half the mass of the Earth to several times, a couple, three times the mass of the Earth. Um, there are these kinds of planets around now that are called that we now call super Earths, which are much more massive than the Earth, but also made out of rock. I have a little anecdote about that. And I used to teach a class called Search for Life in the Universe, and I used to have students design planets. Before we knew there were any super Earths, uh, the students would often come up with a super Earth concept. I want an eight solar mass, eight sorry, eight Earth mass. A rocky planet, and I'd say I'd have to say, well, we don't know whether they exist, but maybe they do, and, uh, and their, imagi do. their imaginations <laughs> were better than than the science of the time. Um, so I, I'm sort of interested in, and what do you think are there some scientific discoveries that haven't been explored by science fiction yet that you think might catch on? Um, obviously, there's some tropes in science fiction that are kind of overplayed, but what do you think is the next step in science fiction now that we know more than we do? Boy, if I knew did? that, I'd write it. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. <laughs> I think one of the interesting things about that is that if you look back you know, 20 years ago, as an example, the the number of blockbuster science fiction space-related movies today that are enjoyed by the public are many, many times what they had been 10 or 20 years ago. So I, I believe public interest is really gaining some momentum in space exploration. Um, yeah, and many of them are, are a lot better than, than mm -hmm. early movies, although I have some favorite early movies, too. All right, we've got a phone call, so we're going to go oh, to the phones. And Dave from Bloomington is on the line. Dave? Yeah. Yeah, I was just wondering, um, how soon do you think we, uh, uh, we, Amer we Americans or human beings, Russians, et cetera, would uh, terraform Mars, and how would we go about doing it? How soon do you think we could do it, and how would we do it? Okay. Just, you know, very briefly. Great question, but somebody needs to explain what terraform Mars means. <laughs> well, that, that means uh, turning it into a planet that has conditions where we could live okay. uh, on, the, -like on the surface without without a spacesuit. Gotcha. Right. Okay. There's a great series of novels, uh, triptych, uh, three novels, by Kim Stanley Robinson in the 1990s uh, called uh, Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars. And you can just tell from the title, which is about the terraformation of Mars. Uh, and he imagines that it happens somewhere in the middle of the 21st century, right? You know, going from red to blue Mars. That is a Mars that has oceans on it. Um, Mr. Durson, you're shaking your head. Is that an unrealistic <laughs> expectation? 21st century? No. no. Yeah. I, it may be in 1,000, 2,000 years we might, we might consider it. But we have to know whether there's life, uh, indigenous life on Mars uh, before we start messing with the planet. Mm. But you know, one of the problems with Mars is that it just doesn't have this protective magnetic field, magnetic shield. And uh, it, the, sun, the solar energy from the sun is able to strip away any atmosphere that you'd be able to generate when you're terraforming the planet. The first thing we'd have to do on Mars is somehow create this global magnetic field hmm. that would protect the, the atmosphere that we then build from uh, solar radiation. I mean, I, I'm not sure it can be done. I, it's a centuries-long process. Hmm. Uh, well, you could probably uh, do it... Uh, a temporary atmosphere. I mean, uh, the, the the stripping time is still takes it still takes a long time, but the problem is uh, what we want is free oxygen, and that's a little hard hard to do. There's water on Mars, and we'd have to break it apart and get rid of the hydrogen, and then we could have some uh, an oxygen rich atmosphere. It's it's a lot of work. Going back to Dr. Kilgore's point about uh, those 
those excellent Kim Stanley Robinson books. Um, one of the great things about those books is, is they're both very scientifically detailed. You know, he did a huge amount of research, and, and he's a really scientifically literate writer. But in addition, what, what, what he kind of posits is that the, the project of figuring out the governance of Mars and the culture of Mars and how all of these um, tensions and relationships between different nations, for example, like the U.S. and, and Russia, uh, all these tensions on Earth are going to get kind of ported over to Mars and how they're going to get worked out differently and how different new cultures and religions and cults will sort of rise up uh, to form a, a distinctive Martian society. He posits that those social and cultural and government problems are actually just as difficult as the scientific problems. They're just as much of a sticking point. And so I think one of the things that I took from that book is that you know we need to be talking uh, about all of these really, really tricky scientific and technological uh, issues when we think about space exploration in general, not just terraforming, but we also need to be thinking about governance and policy because those are often issues that we leave until the last minute or until after people have already started um, being active uh, in, in in a specific technological realm, whether it's space or somewhere else. And so, you know, the, the Outer Space Treaty was in 67, so it was in the midst of the space race. We didn't have the governance framework for even basic uh, exploration in space until after we had already started doing it. And so trying to move that policy conversation up about how we're going to actually manage this and cooperate and, and, and make sure Mars is, is, is uh, protected, but also um, engaged with in a way that's to the benefit of, of, of humanity. Uh, that's capitally important, just as important as all of these other uh, scientific and technological questions. All right. I want to go to a, new, to a new caller. We've got Sandy on the phone. I think Sandy's going to interject a, a, an additional factor in this. Sandy? Uh, hi. Yes, I'm finding the program so interesting, and I'm wondering if your panel has suggestions on how you can teach children to engage their uh, interest in science while also uh, engaging their faith through ancient religious texts that, you know, seem as outrageous sometimes as, as the... Uh, potential scientific explorations uh, that, that are presented. All right. Thanks, Sandy. Okay. Well, that, that takes me back to Kim Stanley Robbins again. Again. Okay. What, uh, one of the things that he uh, does in terms of, of um, his Mars novels is not only try to talk about, uh, you know, get into the science, right, and the politics but also the culture, the religion. So if you imagine that humanity is going to uh, another planet, right, you are um, not simply projecting a part of it. And that's, that's unfortunately, that's, well, not f unfortunately, uh, but that has been um, uh, something that science fiction, of course, does, is that, uh, you know, in part, science fiction does uh, becomes a kind of projection of science out there. But what Kim Stanley Robinson does, uh, which makes his book so great, is that he uh, imagines that we will not just produce, you know, project our science and technology, but everything else that we are, right? Which includes uh, religion, which includes our includes our, our ancient texts, right? So not only are we creating Mars as a as 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 a physical entity, but Mars as a kind of a Mars that is. Um, Jewish, Christian, uh, Islamic, you know, uh, 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 Asian with its different faiths, you know, right? So what does it mean to become Martian, right? It might be some, you, you're, you're kind of fooling around with 
uh, everything that we've developed here on the earth, right? It won't be left behind. It will be taken there and then transformed or changed, right? So how do we understand Mars? Do we understand it as Mars or do we understand it uh, through the lens of the other kind of uh, mythological uh, traditions and the other names I'm, I'm not gonna, that we have called Mars in other traditions over, over time, right? So. Uh, I, have a, I have a small comment uh, going in a different direction. The question was about how do you, how do you teach science to young people uh, in, in a way that's compatible with, with uh, a, a, a belief system, a faith-based belief system of some sort. Well, uh, the w one thing I thought about was what do I get from science? Sci uh, what's what's a, a feeling or emotion that I associate with science that's very much connected in, in human history and culture with religion? And that's a sense of awe. And I think that's a perspective from which many young people uh, go into science. And so I think that's an area of, of important commonality. If you can teach children awe and respect for nature, I think that's very compatible with uh, belief systems as well. We only have about three minutes to go, uh, and I'm, I'm going to ask each of you, to, you know, this is kind of a big question, but I'm going to bring it back to earth and, you know, political realities and issues. I mean, how do, how do you, would you go about talking to um, people in our government, for instance, about the importance of space exploration, of science fiction literature, of exploring well beyond, you know, wh whether somebody's going to get a vote in the next election. It seems like science sometimes takes a back seat to um, things that you know, people can see tomorrow. They can't necessarily see what we're going to see in 12 months from the new, you know, the new um, telescope that's being launched. I'll start that. I've, um, <clears throat> I think one of, the, one of the greatest things that has happened in the last several decades in space exploration is the Space Act Agreement that allowed the commercialization of space. And that allowed corporations to be able to fly low-Earth orbit d deliveries to the ISS. SpaceX, there's several, there's several in the U.S. that do that. SpaceX is probably the one that's the most visible. The fact that SpaceX made the recent announcement they're going to the moon in 2018, prior to that, last September uh, of last year, uh, Elon Musk said they were going to Mars and they're going to do it around the 2020s. Here's the interesting difference between that space program and NASA's space. And I love NASA. I, I bleed blue for NASA. But when, when SpaceX wants to fund a major program of space exploration, they have a variety of funding sources available to them. If they lose one, they go find more. NASA has one funding resource, and that's Congress. And so I believe that commercialization of space will probably in the future lead the way. Okay. We have two minutes to go. Mr. Durson, why don't you go next? Um, well... Uh, when I've made arguments for funding for science with politicians, I guess uh, the the argument that I've made it's not it's not a deep one. It's that uh, it's stimulation of imagination, exactly what we're talking about, um, and certainly science fiction plays a role in that. But uh, uh, funding of the space program in whatever way uh, by the government or, or commercially uh, that inspires people mm -hmm. and it inspires young people to go into science and and they they 
you know, yeah, they, they think about space, but they don't often go into space. They just become scientists and engineers, and they do some useful stuff for humanity. Okay, we only have a minute to go. DeWitt, just very quickly. Well, I would say something similar, you know, following that old cliche that man does not live by bread alone. Um, without imagination, the people die, you know. So if we're interested in, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, prospering not only physically, economically, but also, uh, I'll dare to say it, spiritually, uh, we need to always keep room for this kind of uh thought this kind of work because we never know what the fruit of it might be. Okay, final word from Joey Eschrick. I have a much more mundane take, which is, you know, the last several federal election cycles, we haven't talked much about science and technology policy. And I think there's a feedback loop there. The more that we talk about it, the more people can get um, well acquainted with the ideas and the more that we can start having a, a more robust public conversation about uh, the, decision, the decisions we should make scientifically and technologically in terms of funding and regulation. And science fiction is part of that picture of increasing the amount of conversation we're having in society about these issues. And of course, scientific discovery and conversation is an important part of that, too. And so building an, uh, a political ecosystem where we can actually talk about these issues uh, in intelligent ways and make decisions collectively about okay. what we should and shouldn't do. I'm going to have to cut you off. Thank you very much. I appreciate uh, Joey Eschrick who's at Arizona State University, Greg McCauley, uh, Richard Dorson, and DeWitt Kilgore have all been here with us today. I want to thank all of you, as well as producer Ryan DiBattista, engineer Mike Pashkash, and Becca Costello for joining me today. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu and Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.